Hello, my fine no ad feed friends. What's this, an ad on the no ad feed? What's going on? It's not an ad, not really. I'm just here to tell you that the system by which we do the no ad rehalastapers is about to change at the end of June. We're going over to Acast Plus. There'll be loads of warning about this and details of how you change over. But if you want to carry on getting ad-free rehalastapers, then you have to move to Acast Plus. The monthly badger system will continue and it will be to back... Uh, my other projects, my other non-commercial projects, such as Twitch of Fun, Self-Playing Snooker and Stone Clearing. But if you're into Rahalastapur, you have to move over to ACAS Plus. You can stay with both systems or you can choose which one you want to go with. But there will be more information coming up very soon. Thanks for your time. Now listen to this ad-free, apart from this ad, feed-free fee. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to another Rahalastapa Book Club. I'm very excited to welcome a previous Rahalastapa guest. It's Professor Alice Roberts, who will be talking about a brilliant book, Buried. Hello, Alice. Hello. Hello, hello. I'm glad you like the book. That's lovely. Oh, I love it. Well, look, I loved loved the Ancestors book and I love this book. Um, uh, Let's talk briefly about the many, many books you've done i mean people will probably know best of all your proceedings of the sixth annual conference of the british association of biological anthropology and osteoarchaeology that was a good one um but that's what you're most known for but you've done you've written uh, is this your 12th book uh buried or do you keep count yeah it's re- it's getting tricky actually to keep count of them because um there's some which i feel um it's it's not really right to count as two books like i did a big illustrated anatomy book for Dorling Kindersley but it was anatomy physiology and pathology and then they and then they pulled out the anatomy bit and then published that on its own so there's complete human body and then there's complete anatomy or something it's called and I thought well is that does that count as another book because it's actually (laughs) the same book yeah you've got to count got to count it twice okay well it's it's probably 13 then (laughs) okay (laughs) I don't think you can count the hardback and the paperback but I think if uh if the name's different yeah uh, yeah, you can you can trick people into buying extra ones. Um, I, I I did mention it on the the podcast before. I I think the first book of yours I read was the Incredible Human Journey, which I enjoyed greatly. Which though it, I think we said this on the other podcast, it must be it's research has moved on quite a long way, even in the ten or so years since you wrote that book. And so there's there's quite a lot that's changed in the yeah. In the, there's in a the, lot of it still stands up to scrutiny. Yeah. Um, I wrote that in 2008, um, which is when we filmed the big series of Incredible Human Journey, which went out on BBC Two in 2009. It was my first big landmark series, and um, it was um, obviously meticulously researched at the time. But uh, there's a massive omission now, which is that we didn't have any idea in 2008 that modern humans and Neanderthals interbred and had babies together, and now we know they yeah. definitely did. So that's quite quite a major omission that's pretty big and there seems to be more every time you i read the news about this there seems to be an extra oh and uh, uh, people came out of africa a few more times <laughs> and yeah. we found another group of people that came out a bit earlier but, but it's still the same basic exodus point is the same the main exodus point is the same but there may have been a few uh monkey men jumping out a bit earlier yeah, well, well, absolutely. There must have been because we get um, we've got like Homo erectus evolving. Um, we think in Africa um, around two million years ago, and then they very quickly pop up all over the world. And I say we think in Africa because actually the earliest Homo erectus fossils that we've got in Africa are about one point eight million years old, 
And we've got some from um, the Republic of Georgia, which are also around 1.8 million years old. So oh. I think there's a, you know, there's a little bit of a question there about where exactly that, that species originated. It could have originated perhaps in Western Asia. Um, but yeah, certainly it wasn't just an African story for those earlier species no. as well. Um, but in a, in a sense, it's the exciting thing about archaeology, I think, and uh, is you know a that we can find, and this is what your the current book is really is really about. But a we can find out this amazing stuff about things that happened so long ago. But also, it's open to reinterpretation and also new discoveries, which is is exciting. Really, it's really exciting. I mean, it is a, you know it is a science. So science um, is evidence based, and as more evidence accumulates, you you adapt your your theories and your hypotheses. But I think what we're seeing now is that we've we've got the broad brushstrokes and we've had the broad brushstrokes there for a, a while. So, for instance, if you look at the origin of our own species, we're, we're absolutely sure that our own species, Homo sapiens, evolved in, in Africa. And there are different strands of evidence that come together to support that. So not just the fossils, but also genetics as well. Hmm. So we're, we're pretty sure about that. You know, there's always there's always levels of um reliability and kind of robusticity of results in science there's some things that we can be incredibly sure about like the fact that the earth goes around the sun and then there are other things that we're you know still working out the details of so i think we've got a lot of the broad brushstrokes of of human evolution and we know of about 20 hominin species so those are species that are more closely related to us than they are to other apes um going back from you know sort of five million years ago through to the present day and what's odd is that we're, you know, we're just the only ones left. Um, and it was quite a bushy yeah. tree of different hominin species. And then there was just this one little twig that carried on to the present day and was ridiculous. With a little bit of Neanderthal in us, though. Yes. And some of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's true. <laughs> so even though even though it's kind of single species that's carried on to the to the present day, we have incorporated bits and pieces of other species in us. So not just Neanderthals, but these mysterious Denisovans as well that we know from... Mm. DNA extracted from bones in Siberia too, which is really peculiar because we don't have a whole skeleton of them. We don't really know what they look like. We've only got like sort of finger and toe bones, and the occasional right. tooth. Um, Maybe they were just a tooth on the end of a finger. Maybe that's what they that's were. That's it. Just yeah, around. just yeah. hopping around. That's how they ate with a tooth. Good, but you, you know, you've got to keep an open mind, Alice. Absolutely, with, uh, Richard. <laughs> Good luck so, with that you know, one. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> Glad you. Well, look, I re- I listen. I've listened, but both of these books, Ancestors and Buried, I listened to the audio book. So I listened to Ancestors uh, last year. I presume it was, um, which uh, is it, they're sort of a, a come to they're 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 together really. These books aren't they? They, 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 they so the Ancestors is uh, the pre- prehistoric burials and Buried is burials. I, I always want to say Anglo-Saxon, but I know from reading the book that I better not say <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, it's really tricky. From, from the from the first millennium of Britain is what it says is, uh, is what it says uh, on the front front cover. I like the the books as a pair, though I think they are quite different in flavour. If, if I, I thought ancestors felt like you, because obviously you are picking out really star burials from throughout history and so they were all kind of almost celebrity burials in terms in archaeological yeah, and historical yeah. terms whereas buried feels much more like a, a sort of personal your personal journey with with the the work you yourself did as well as some very impressive uh, burials as well but so there is there is quite a, in this one feel buried feels like more of a personal book to you do you think that's fair yeah i think so i mean um i suppose i mean ancestors is a kind of i've said this at the beginning of both of them quite unashamedly they're both they're not meant to be textbooks they're not meant to be comprehensive surveys of british prehistory and then history 
Um, I've picked out burials that I know something about, which is always helpful when you start writing yeah. a book. Um, and ones that I'm, you know, kind of interested in, and I think cast light on the on the kind of the wider time, the society that these people lived in, that kind of thing. Um, but you're right. I mean, with with buried, um, it was an opportunity for me to go back to some skeletons that I've looked at over the years, and and actually reboot a bit of research too. So that's that's what's quite interesting, I think, about writing these books is that I'm not just kind of writing about the science once it's happened. As you write about it, you go, oh, hang on a minute. I better go back and check that again and and do a bit more research. So I'm actively working on some of the some of the skeletons in those books. Um and actually that I mean that that's the same for ancestors too, where I include a bit of a story about some of the skeletons, some of the skulls that I'm looking at from Pitt Rivers estate um yes. on Cranbourne Chase. But the other big difference, of course, between the two books is that Ancestors is all about prehistory. So you're accessing the past only through archaeology you've only got the objects to look at and then once you get into history so once you get into the first millennium you've got some written material as well and I describe that as a blessing and a curse because yes it's amazing to hear all the names of people and to hear all these details and you know particularly from Roman literature uh, but it draws the eye and it draws your attention so much and I think what you have to do is treat the archaeology on its own it's a bit like it's a bit like a forensics case, actually. And I've worked in forensics cases where yeah. you don't, when you're working on the um, the human remains, you don't want to know anything else about the case. You want to be completely objective about what you're looking at. And you just want to draw information from what you've got in front of you and then give that to the police. And it's really important, actually, that you don't know anything else about the context of the case because that could, could potentially colour your interpretation of the uh, of the evidence that you're looking at. And I think we should be approaching archaeology in the same way so that rather than going, oh, here's the history, let's see how archaeology illustrates that, or here's the history, let's see how archaeology um, provides more evidence, we should be going, well, let's put the history to one side. What does the archaeology say? And then And then bring in the history to create yeah. the bigger picture and the bigger context. Yeah, it's very interesting that. And and, and also, of course, the, the history is is still very, very sparse from, from these times. Either things haven't survived or certainly a lot of those uh, post-Roman times in in Britain, there was not much being written. You know, priests and stuff might have been writing a little bit and we weren't getting much stuff from, from, from other people. Yeah, I mean, so I still it, use the term the Dark Ages, which obviously if yeah. my friend um, Yanina Ramirez would completely throw up her hands in horror about, but we do have this kind of pit of, you know, suddenly this void of, uh, of literature um, in the in the kind of fifth and sixth centuries where we, we don't really know what's going on and we certainly don't have as much detail as we did in the Roman period. But having said that, the Roman period is really patchy and it's also... Um, it's another way that history kind of skews our view of the past is that it's it's a lot of it is military uh, and a lot of it is to do with administration. And we're not really getting at the lives of ordinary people in Britain. You know, we do no. a bit um, elsewhere in the Roman Empire, but not so much in Britain. And there are people writing about political events in Britain who've never set foot in the country. So it's, yeah, it's really tricky. It, even though we think we've got masses of literature about Roman Britain that it's actually quite patchy I mean sure. even you know even Hadrian's Wall is I think it's only mentioned once it's you know it's okay. a kind of passing it's like 15 words or something about Hadrian's Wall in the whole yeah. of Roman literature and you kind of <laughs> get this impression that there's a lot more and there isn't yeah um it's you know it's really uh, I, I feel this the buried is sort of more of a um 
you know, it's like it feels like a little love affair with the with with how archaeology works because it is it's sort of intrinsically fascinating how much you can discover about the past from relatively tiny clues. And obviously that's with DNA and everything that's expanded out a lot more in the last few years than would have been the case uh, before that. But, uh, you know, within this, it's just learning from bones and teeth and grave goods. But you also go into obviously language and place names and uh, sort of putting this jigsaw together and then combining that with with DNA. But it is it is a very, it's a, you know... It, it's a meticulous and long-reaching project to do it, but it's a very, it's a sort of very exciting that 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 science can bring to life so much from the past that would be forgotten because it's yeah. literally not written about. No, yeah. it's amazing, and it's um, and I think that what's what's really interesting is that people are you know increasingly working in really big teams uh, with lots of different expertise coming together, and um, that I mean the archaeogenetics is just transformative. It's really amazing. And um, I am, I mean, ho- hopefully buried is wet your appetite and you think, oh, it finishes, you know, at the end of that first millennium. Surely there's more. So I'm currently writing the last book in the trilogy, <laughs> um, which takes us into the, the last millennium, um, where I'm really focusing on pathology as well, which is um, what kind of drew me into this area to begin with. And I did my PhD in paleopathology, as you know, Richard, because you've read I do, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, as you revealed when I previously did the Revelative podcast. And and the way that that's been transformed by genetics is just astounding because we can can now extract not just the the DNA of that particular individual, the human DNA, but in there there will be any DNA of any pathogens which they had on board. So, um, so you know, it's just extraordinary. We know, for instance, as I talk about in, in, um, in Buried, that the Justinianic plague of the 6th century, which we have good documentary records for ripping through the Byzantine Empire, um, we didn't know whether it reached Britain at all. We didn't have any evidence. We didn't have anything written about it. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of kind of passing things, um, something which I'm not sure anybody else had, had picked up on, actually, in the Book of Llandaff, where there's a story about a, um, a, about a bishop coming back to, to West Wales um, and it mentions a pestilence. And I wondered whether that was actually this Justinianic plague. So I think there may be kind of subtle hints at it in the literature. But what we've got is more than a subtle hint in the in the form of actual Yersinia pestis plague pathogen DNA from sixth century uh, cemeteries now. There's one that I mentioned in the book. And since the book was published, we've got several more. So we, we oh, can great. see that it's, you know, right across Britain, basically. So the plague um, does reach British shores in that sixth century. Yeah, it's. I mean, I just find it. It's sort of unbelievable <laughs> that, you're, that you're able. I mean, it's such a, a wonderful thing about science and archaeology that that is possible. That something that specific is possible to actually, you know, find out about and and an actual have a mm. solid fact. Basically, I just it, that, and, and I suppose that's what this book is. Though you, there, there's some, you know there are some really interesting. Uh, I was very interested in the the early. Um, burial discovered with the with the pipe coming out of the of the coffin which is something you know you wouldn't think of and then working out what why that is and what that means and working out uh yeah the the uh, why that happens i got Um, really i was fascinated by that i mean that was a that was a cremation that i looked at some 20 years ago and i was looking at a whole pile of cremations from um from kalian the um the the legionary fortress in in, in South Wales. So it's really important because it's one of three big legionary bases in Britain. The other two are Chester and York, 
And um, there was a town that kind of grew up around the fortress and it was in its kind of heyday in the second and third centuries. And um, cremations were fairly, fairly normal at the time. But this one was just extraordinary because it wasn't just buried in the ground or in a pot in the ground. It was in this lead canister with a pipe going to the surface of the ground. Yeah. And I remember when I looked at this burial, I mean, cremations are, um, you know, really tedious to, <laughs> to analyze because you've just got this pile of very tiny bone fragments. But, you know, you've got stuff that you can identify some of the time. Um, but I kind of felt with that one that I I could conclude that uh, there was one individual in that in that canister and it was an adult and it might have been a man. And that was that was kind of the limit of my <laughs> scientific contribution. But I was much more interested in the style of the burial and what that what that was about. And um there's I think there's a there's one other name from Britain, but there are lots lots of them named from other places in the Roman Empire. Yeah. And some of them are pottery and some of them are lead. And it is connected with the Roman tradition of graveside feasting. So presumably what you do is go along on one of the very many Roman days of the dead. They seem to be quite obsessed about this, um, going back to graveyards, not just on a single day of the dead each year, but on multiple ones through the year, and have a feast and um, and celebrate with the deceased person and give them a little tipple down the pipe. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's just extraordinary. Um, so, I've, no, I really loved that. And, and then I had this really bizarre uh, moment on a dog walk uh, with um, my friend Natasha, where I was telling her about writing the book, and I said, "Oh, this amazing pipe burial in Killian," and I think it's to do with graveside feasting. How curious! And she said, "She comes from Siberia," and she said, "Oh yeah, we do that." And I said, "What?" <laughs> and she said, "Yeah, yeah, we do." It. We uh, she said every year we had to go to the graves, and there was a specific day called Parents' Day, and you had to um, eat food, and the and the adults would all be drinking vodka, and it was you we were all told as children that you know we had to join in with the feast that was that was what happened at the gravesides I thought well that's extraordinary and she sent me some information about it and I started exploring that and found out that it was a um a tradition in the um Russian Orthodox Church and the um Greek Orthodox Church so the two big branches of the Eastern Orthodox Church and I thought well this is interesting isn't it because um those go back to the Byzantine Empire and actually Parents Day itself seems to be the original Roman, uh, one of the original Roman days of the dead called parent. Right. It was called parentalia. We've got, we've got the literary <laughs> evidence of this. So it's a ritual which goes back to pre-Christian Roman empire, um, survived through, um, through Christianity. So Christian, Christians just adopted it. Um, the Soviet union tried to obviously get rid of all religion and rituals, but this graveside feasting continued and um, with a kind of reinvigoration of, uh, of Christianity in Russia today, um, it's you know it is it is all done very openly. Um, although reading some of the some of the websites from the um, Russian Orthodox Church is quite interesting because uh, they they frown upon excessive merriment. So you can have your feast and you can do your drinking of vodka, but just you know you know all things in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's amazing to find those. I mean, it's sort of is amazing and it isn't amazing because you obviously that's how humans work. But to find these connections to the past, but all of us, I think you might even basically allude to this or say this in the book. Uh, you know, we we have all been brought up by a parent or a parent figure who has been brought up by a parent figure, and that each each generation will pass things down. So you know, we're we're all in this 
never ending chain. Yeah, that is a parent to a child, parent to a child, beyond humanity and back to. So a lot of these myths and a lot of the, you know, even the things, the the, the way we act with our families and the things we talk about, some of them must go back hundreds and hundreds of years, and maybe even more than that without us knowing. Maybe some of the unconscious cues and stuff. So it's yeah, it's. It's fascinating to see it when it actually <laughs> you can actually progress it, and it hasn't been destroyed by re- regime changes and wars, and 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 is still going on in different places. I think I, what I love about your writing is that it does you know your books are, are, are certainly academic, and they fit. You feel like you're learning stuff from them, and I think they're the obviously the research is all there, but you, but you you're very much a part of the books, and they're and they're they're written in a in a very Alice Roberts style and we so we get your person which isn't always the case with with history and uh, you know and scientific books that I think you're or you're sort of a character within your own books and we get your personality but it's it's there's a chattiness to it yeah. that I think brings brings in the reader as well you know you talk about your your partner your husband and 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 your own life in there as well as as well as the which I think is lovely because again, that is you are part of history, Alice. You know, eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's you'd like to know more about the historians of the past, which you do get a little bit in, the, in their histories. But it's is is that a, is that is that consciously are you writing consciously with an idea I want to get a mass audience, or is just this is this how you would write? I think it's just how I write. Actually, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky that readers like it, and I get lots of nice comments from from people on Twitter saying that they really enjoy hearing my voice coming through in the writing um it certainly makes it a lot easier when you do the audiobook as well because it's like I've (laughs) basically written for it it, for me to read out you know that's kind of that's kind of how I write um and I think I suppose I I suppose over time I've probably become more comfortable doing that um some of my I think I think this is probably much chattier if you were to kind of compare this with Incredible Human Journey which has still got a lot of experiential stuff in it. Um, you know, I was writing it as I was filming that program. And so there's a lot of conversations with with experts in there and then a lot of experiential um, kind of travelogy type um, content as well. Um, but I think I probably have become much more, not relaxed about being conversational, but much more comfortable doing that. And also yeah. quite robust about, you know, because I want to get the occasional reviewer saying, oh, you know, it's not very academic. And it's like, well, you know what do you mean do you do you mean turgid do you mean I should be writing in a more you know sort of florid or or turgid way and and a less conversational way in which case um I would disagree with you and I think my readers do as well yeah there's a snobbishness to that but you know but it but you want to educate people so being entertaining and being being a human being I think is 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 part of that and you know and as I say I think the it doesn't feel like I, it doesn't feel like the content is dumbing down in any way. It's not like mm. you're, you're you you are very kindly if if it's an area that you know people aren't an expert on, you will lead people in and, and remind people of the facts. And uh, I like very early on that you explain why you're using <laughs> BCE and uh, <laughs> CE uh, to, to avoid people writing into you. I know that's why you do. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> just so I will explain that they've been going for a long time and it's fine, uh, which is lovely. But uh, but you know that's. It, it, the the actual work the actual research and the science of it is is i i would consider it an academic book but but it's one that i don't know i remember being at university and reading history books and turning off and you know that was what i was meant to be doing as a student oh, no. so to, to 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 um to you know to draw people in is not a bad thing and to to entertain people it sort of is a weird snobbishness about the way things are supposed to be but you know i don't think it's a good way to 
to impart information. Talking of the, I've listened to both of them in audio book. I do have them both as books as well because there's some lovely uh, pictures that are well worth seeing. But uh, and it's nice to be able to read them as well. Um, when you're doing your audio, but with this one, did you regret putting in all those Celtic names of places? There's a whole, oh. about, there's about three pages where you're just saying these very difficult to pronounce yeah. Celtic words. No, it was you... it was really really difficult, and I <laughs> and I did have some help with that because because um, yes. obviously when you write it down. Um, you go well. That's that's fine. I've written it down, and I can and I can write it and make sure that it's um, that it's correct. Um, yeah. But as for pronouncing it, and it is it is really it is really really tricky. Um, yeah. So yeah, I did I did have some help for that, which was fantastic. Um, well, it's, uh, a, it's a beautiful portion of the audio, but you do pronounce them very. I don't know if, if it's correctly because I don't yeah. know how to say them, but <laughs> but it's. But you say them very beautifully, and it does make it sound very magical. Oh uh, no, I hate to say. I mean, I had a, I had a, um, a really, um, I had a really lovely interaction with a, a linguist in in Scotland, Michael Bauer. Um, he helped me enormously, and um, you know, sent me sent me himself reading the um, the words that I needed to pronounce. Um, yeah. But then actually demanded that I did a Zoom session with me because with him because he said it's actually a lot about the shape of your mouth, and you have to watch me doing it. Um, and I have to watch you doing it to make sure that you're doing it right. Um, and that's much better than just listening. Um, so he was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, that was a, that was a bit of a bonus getting a getting a tutorial in in um, in Gallic pronunciation. Yeah, I've just because I've just written a book and I, I was in mind of the audio book. And occasionally I go, oh, I don't know how to say that word. I'll, <laughs> but I'll change it to something else that I know yeah. that I'm comfortable with saying. <laughs> I know, I know, I know how to write it down, but God knows how you say that. So yes, uh, there's there's a little bit of history in my book, and I'm thinking, oh God, I've got to I've got to work out how to say all those Persian kings' names or whatever it is. But never mind. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's 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 because it's the subject you're dealing with because it's dead bodies <laughs> largely. It is you do have to sort of step step away from to up to an extent from the from the tragedy, the human tragedy that obviously all these people have died. I know there's a, there's a chapter about infanticide mm. and, uh, and th- that you'd give some trigger warnings with, which is, uh, which is all well and good, but it's, um, it, it is that sort of, it's a, and, and you're saying you were just, I think either about to become a mother or just become a mother when you were, when you were researching that, that part. Oh yeah. So was, that was yeah. the very first series of digging for Britain and, yeah. um, which was, which was interesting in itself because I was, thinking about doing the series and then uh and then I was pregnant and so I spoke to the executive producer and said ah I'm pregnant and he said oh okay um well you know maybe we can work together in the future and I said hang on a minute um I could still do it (laughs) and he said really (laughs) and I was like well I think um you know I could do it I could bring my baby with me I talked to my friend Miranda Kristovnikov who was a fellow coaster we both presented Coast back in the day yeah. on BBC Two, and I knew that she'd taken her babies filming with her, and so I had a chat to her about it, and she said, "Oh yeah, absolutely, they're completely portable. You can just put them under the table, um, and um, in a in a chair, in like a you know car seat, uh, not just under the table." Uh, <laughs> and um, and I thought, "Well, okay, it might be doable." So um, so yeah, so John Farron was up for it, and. Um, and it was absolutely brilliant, and I we had a we had a lovely time doing it. So I went off with my husband and this tiny baby. I think she was about five weeks old when we first started filming. And my very the very very first story that we were covering was this story of infanticides, and I hadn't really 
thought about whether it was going to be tricky, <laughs> which is, yeah. um, you know, a, a, a failing on my part. But I, I was there unpacking all these little um, boxes full of tiny little infant bones and laying them out. And I was suddenly quite kind of like, oh, OK, yeah, this is quite close and this is quite close to the bone for me so forgive the pun yeah. um at that particular time I was able to kind of maintain my professional objectivity and just get on with the job um but it turned out to it turned into a really interesting project and that was that was one of these interesting moments when um research turns into television turns into research again because as I was looking at these infant bones I noticed cut marks on them and they'd not been noticed before so that turned into a whole research project in its own right and we ended up writing a paper on it and um, with um, my friend Kate Robson-Brown at University of Bristol and Simon Mays of um, Historic England. And we think that it's probably evidence of Roman obstetrics. So we think that it's probably, um, it's, I mean, it's, it is dreadfully sad and really gruesome, but it's probably a, a fetus which has been dismembered in order to save a mother's life, actually. So maybe obstructed labour and then dismemberment of a fetus. So it is, it's quite, um, yeah, it's, it's subjects that, I, I was keen to just include, well, my own story and my own feelings about looking at those bones at the beginning as part of a warning that that content was there in the chapter. And there's this really weird thing going on at the moment um, in, well, around archaeology, I would say, not not in archaeology, um, where some people are getting aerated about um, trigger warnings. Now, trigger warning is a new, is a relatively new phrase that's come along um, for you know, decades in in the two disciplines that I'm most heavily involved with, anatomy and archaeology, um, we've you know we've recognised that it's actually very good to be sensitive um, yeah. and not do what happened to me when I went to medical school, which is basically to throw me into the dissection room on the very first day of medical school. Go, here's a knife, get get going. Then there's a dead body on you go, um, and we're much more not delicate but just thoughtful about that introduction exactly, yeah. of um, of you know mortality. Um, uh, of talking about death, of actually experiencing death in that way. And you don't know what's just happened in people's lives. You know, so there could be somebody reading my books who's just lost a baby or, you know, you don't know what's going on. So I think it's really appropriate to say, this is what this chapter's about. You might, at this point in your life, want to skip over it. And I don't think that's, I mean, it's just it's just bizarre. So there's this stuff going on. It is a weird, it's a weird thing to get upset about because it's not really hard, unless you think, I've, I haven't got time to read two sentences yeah, that don't really, apply to me. It's really odd. So uh, there was a criticism, uh, there was a freedom of information request to universities and there was a, there was a criticism of um, a university course where there was a, there was a warning about um, that kind of content, about content around um, human remains in it. And I think the Daily Mail covered it and said oh this is so woke and it's like it's not what you know what is what does it what does woke mean it's just it's just being sensitive and it's kind and of people, normal you know, as we're seeing as people i mean this is all part of history as well people don't, don't like things to change they like things to be the way they were and it is you know it is it is sort of when you actually come down to all these things you go well it's just being slightly thoughtful about someone else yeah. for a second I mean, if that is that is that so bad? So yeah, it's really it, but odd, there isn't is. It? It's like, we it don't is want weird. you to behave weird. like that. We want you to be deliberately <laughs> cruel. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but you know I think it's very good to give the warning. We've we, I, I suppose we've also given the warning as well. Hopefully, uh, but um, but yeah, but but it, but you as a as a scientist and as an archaeologist, you know, you need to do that. And it is actually a fascinating chapter about um, birth control in the past and all these things you mm. wouldn't necessarily think about that wouldn't. And you know, and how, and how, uh, the, the one would have had to cope with though with those situations where uh, the, uh, a baby is 
not you haven't got modern medicine and, and there's no other way out of the situation you have to choose that awful you know it's it's good to realize those things because we obviously we live in a society hopefully which where where those things are very rare and uh, obviously they're happening in places in the world though so it's and it is fascinating that I, I just find it amazing you can learn so much <clears throat> excuse me from um from something like that and and just you know you're you noticing that detail yeah um, just sort of spins everything around as well yeah no it is interesting and I think it was it was um interesting to write about infanticide and, and also to uh, there's been this kind of ongoing debate about how much infanticide actually happened in the Roman world and, mm. um, you know, whether it was used to um, skew uh, gender, you know, whether whether you were, whether you were, um, you know, getting rid of more female babies than you were, than you were male babies, for instance. Um, and also the idea of infanticide as effectively a late abortion, because there's no safe, there's no safe abortions. Um, and, and I think that's all, you know that's all very interesting, and also there's a high there's a high rate of infant mortality in the Roman world. Say so that something like a third of babies were unlikely to make it to their first birthday. So it's quite a shockingly high rate of mortality compared with yeah. what we see actually around the world today. But then I did put that in context a bit as well because there's huge variability, obviously, around the world. Um, and the other thing to say is that is that we can't just, I don't know, there's this, I think there's a tendency which I, I try to target a few times in the book or just pick away at a few times in the book of lumping everyone together and just saying the Romans were callous. <laughs> the Romans didn't care about life, you know, didn't care about infant deaths and things like that. And you just think, no, you can't do this. People are diverse. They always have been. Um, and there may have been, well, there would have been some callous individuals because there always are some callous individuals, but there would have been people who were really desperately upset by losing their children um and even you know even desperately upset by having to commit infanticide because they couldn't support another another baby in the family um so i think it's really important that we don't do that kind of you know easy characterization and stereotyping of people in the past um because we shouldn't be doing it in the present either and i think just because they're in the past it doesn't mean that it's okay to do it yeah that was it's it's you know it's it's a really good it's a really good point and it's uh you know it's a, it's it's absolutely fascinating stuff it is it, it's sort of having to having to step aside and and be a a, a scientist but but also maintain your humanity it's I mean again it's it sort of shows it's not possible to it's not possible to look at a baby skeleton and not be affected by the the story that you're saying but, the, yeah. but I think again but all the things you're working with are someone dying basically aren't they all of the all of these stories by 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 necessity are about something you know and it might be an old age and it might not be a tragic death but it's a you know i mean all deaths are to some extent tragic but it might not be an, un, a, an unexpected death but it's still you're still dealing with a with a human life and i think I, once you realize that's the job as as you say the same if it's a crime as well that you have to do your job and work out what's happened um it, it's it's what can be learnt from those things and 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 yeah it's it, it's it's amazing and I don't know you talk about the um and not again in a similar vein not kind of presupposing gender of uh, the 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 buried person due to what's buried with them yeah um, yeah which is which again is quite a difficult that's a quite a difficult prejudice to overcome and and obviously there are some elements where. Military. Well, I found that interesting that that there was a suggestion that all men were buried with 
the the same kind of weapons, regardless of whether they were military or not. But that was a sign of their masculinity, possibly if they if they had a sword and a knife. Yeah, them, this is really interesting. So talking to yeah. talking to Hugh Wilmot about his um, Anglo-Saxon burials, particularly at Squemby, and um, and he's he's brilliant, Hugh. I mean, he just he just he's a he's a wonderful archaeologist. He just puts things in a very um, accessible way, and you can. It's not kind of highfalutin, and he's he he's done things like um, really kind of open my eyes to. Uh, I think I you know I would have looked at a grave with lots and lots of brooches in it and thought, oh, that's somebody that's really high status. And he said, no, hang on a minute. What if they're buried in the winter? Because if they're buried in the winter, they're clearly being buried. These Anglo-Saxon burials, you know, sort of mid-millennium, uh, people being people are being buried fully clothed. Um, and sometimes you just find, you know, maybe two brooches at the shoulders um, of a woman. Um, but sometimes, you know, there's like up to five brooches. And he said, I don't necessarily think this is about status. It's probably that she's wearing a cloak and there may be something else over the top of that. And it's all pinned yeah. through with the brooches. And you think, oh, yeah, OK, hang on. There is a much more mundane explanation or not more mundane, but just an alternative explanation. Yeah. And then his, yeah, his thing about the kind of warrior status, because there did seem to be this very, you know, this thing. Um, in Anglo-Saxon society, that as a, as a man you expressed your masculinity, and you just you had these things which were emblems of your masculinity, and um, just lots of people get buried with a spear and a shield. And um, Hugh said, Look, "I don't think this means everybody's a warrior, um, or that everybody has even you know used those those weapons, um, you know, in in just the occasional skirmish." It is just that you, that's what you have in the cupboard. <laughs> so yeah. that is your, you have it, so you're ready. Um, and then when you're buried, you're buried with it because it's very personal. So it was really interesting talking to him about, you know, what those, about the meanings, the meanings of those objects. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so difficult to, to to step aside from your own presumptions and, you know, for anyone, but it, but that's, that's the job is that you have to be uh, so open-minded to not, and, and to re-examine what past thought was as well. I think mm. that, that I find it interesting that it's an ever-changing discipline and that language changes and that, I mean, obviously within this book, um, the kind of main thesis at the end is to to question whether our idea that we're all taught in primary school, and I remember being taught in primary school, of all the different, uh, the Jutes and the Saxons and everyone coming in and taking over different, and it being a big battle and, and an invasion. Um because that's what uh, is the venerable bead, is it? Who's who's? Oh yeah, who, yeah. yeah. Who says that? Who had to? Who I had to study at university, but didn't. That's why I'm questioning it. Uh, and uh, and 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 your your thesis in this is it's a it's a much more sort of peaceful, gradual process of uh, of people being welcomed in, or you know, were asked to come and uh, yeah, or just turning up. I mean, it's not really my thesis. It's it's kind of no. what's happening in um, in archaeology at the moment, and a sure. real kind of questioning of that. Um, very neat story, which you know is is lovely and neat, and um, it kind of explains uh, the kind of change in language that we see in Britain, and it explains the change in culture where we do see um, culture that's more linked to um, kind of Northwest Europe rather than Mediterranean Europe. Or actually, actually, when you look at it closely, I mean, this is the interesting thing: is when you look at it closely, even that turns out to have been. Um, you know, to be a massive oversimplification, and you can still see plenty of Mediterranean culture coming in too. Um, but it does it like I mean, um, Susan Oosthuizen has been the, has been a real proponent of uh, of again just putting the history to one side, 
and having a look at the archaeology and seeing what the archaeology says. You know, does the archaeology say that there's um, a massive discontinuity, um, particularly in land use? You know, uh, is, is there a is there a break in agriculture, which means that you've got you know one group of people being slaughtered or moving off somewhere else, and another group of people coming in? Um, and we just don't really seem to see that at all. So it's possible that there's a change in high politics, that there are, um, and, it, and it may not even be different leaders coming in. It might be essentially the same leaders and the same, the same kind of elite families who've, who've held dynastic power in the Roman Empire, still in power, but um, re kind of reorienting their allegiances. So as they leave the Roman Empire, um, they are switching to more allegiances with Northwest Europe. So with those kind of um, classically Germanic um, countries or, you know, states, the other side of the North Sea. So I think that's a really interesting explanation for, for what's going on. Um, and yeah. it means that there's a kind of, yeah, that it's, a, it's, it's more of a political shift than a, than a kind of population shift. But yeah. we're still, I mean, we will find out more about this when we get some more information coming through from genetics. So when my friends at the Crick Institute in London um, process more of their genomes from this millennium, uh, we'll get a much clearer picture of, of what kind of influx there was from the continent during this millennium, because there clearly is influx. We're not, you know, nobody's saying nobody came over the North Sea into Britain <laughs> at that point. But what we don't know, actually, is whether the influx is bigger in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries than it was, for instance, in the Roman period, when we know we've got loads of people coming over the North Sea. We've got, you know, masses of Roman auxiliaries, for instance, coming um, from those from those kind of Germanic homelands. So those are, those are kind of questions that archaeology on its own hasn't been able to answer and where genetics can actually come along and go, right, let's have a look at the genomes of people who are around in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries um, and are they substantially different than the people who were there in the Roman period? Or does it look like we've mostly got the descendants of those people with a few more people coming over? Um, yeah. And they'll, you know, they'll be able to actually quantify how much of an influx there was. And the other thing, of course, is there's always an efflux as well. So there's always, it's not just immigration, there's emigration happening at the same time. We always, we always seem to focus in Britain about on people coming to us <laughs> and ideas coming to us, even yeah. in the modern day, obviously. Um, and we don't, we kind of forget about the people who are leaving Britain and going to settle elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Th that was still happens today and they still get to vote. Uh, <laughs> even though they're living in Spain. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but that's, that's lovely. The way, well, it is interesting, the, the modern parallels that, that come out because of that Europe thing. And obviously going back to the incredible human journey, we all come from the same place anyway. <laughs> and so it's kind of crazy. The idea of being British is is crazy enough anyway but when you look at this period and 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 see the influx of where people are coming from and yeah you know and and you make a good very good points about the language and where that connects to us in the in the continent as well um and i love the i love the way that archaeology and, and genetics can sort of take you know prove the lie in, in the history you know we, we take all these historians at their word and obviously most historians are at the very least prejudiced just from writing from their own point of view so that that you can catch people in in their own lie as a result yes, of this, yes. this thousand year old evidence that's just lying under the ground you go here you go but no look here's the evidence so it's, it, it, it's very it's interesting you compare you know obviously you've worked in crime but it is it is like it is sort of solving 
crimes that are a thousand or two thousand years old. Um, I was disappointed in Buried Ancestors had uh, two chapters, one about the the Pocklington discoveries and one about the Cheddar Man. And I was born in Pocklington and grew up in Cheddar. Oh, brilliant! And so, <laughs> so I kind of thought, oh, good. She's mainly writing about stuff that will apply to, to yeah. me. There's, there's there's nothing in this book from from anywhere that applies to me. But I'm I'm very excited. Uh, it was very nice to read about Cheddar Man. Oh, you love to get a list of places to include in Crypt. <laughs> Loughborough. I lived in Loughborough for a bit. Uh, Shepherd's Bush. If you could do Loughborough, Shepherd's Bush, <laughs> Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire. There must be some stuff around Hertfordshire now. I live in Hertfordshire, so that'll be good. I'll try and dig um, something out for you, Richard. <laughs> thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, and well, I, I don't want to give all the book away anyway. But I was, I, I thought the chapter about the uh, the be- beheaded corpses was was very interesting. That there's lots of burials with the heads placed elsewhere, and it, whether it's criminals mm. or whether it's but uh, but talking about it being possibly you know to stop people coming back. From the dead to haunt people, as a, yeah. it's sort of. I mean, that's amazing. That's, yeah, there's all yeah. these medieval stories about that, um, and it's tricky because they are they are kind of later medieval. They they're not um, the the peak and the peak in these beheaded burials. Uh, oh, it all comes to a head in uh, in the late Roman period, uh, and they're just really odd. They're really odd. Yeah. Um, so you have skulls which are detached and then sometimes put back on the shoulders in the grave. And then there's lots and lots of them where the skulls are put down by the feet or between the knees. Uh, so there's definitely something going on, but trying to work out what yeah. it is, is um, yeah, a real kind of really, you know, lovely investigation. And um, some of it is going to be criminal. Some of it will be criminal execution. Some of it will be conflict undoubtedly, but there do seem to be other interesting things going on where there are heads being carefully detached. And I don't think that that is evidence of beheading as the cause of death. I think that's probably heads being detached after death, where you hope it is anyway. Um, <laughs> and um, and then you just wonder what on earth what on earth is going yeah. on there. So so I think there's, there's potentially a kind of an almost kind of benign ritual element to it as well. And then within some of the beheadings, you do wonder whether there is this kind of um, late beheading going on, which is talked about in the medieval period, where you get bishops saying, yeah, go in, go in this corpse that has been coming up, coming to life every night and terrorizing the village, go and dig it up and chop the head off. You know, we've got we've got um, documentary evidence of, uh, of that being, you know, that being a, a way of exorcising those revenants, those zombies. So you wonder if that goes right back into the Roman period. But it's um, yeah. it's difficult because we don't have any any direct Roman links to that. But then it is something that links to the modern. You know that idea still still has come down to us even in those zombie stories. So that a zombie, if you if you want to stop a zombie, you'd you'd have to cut its brain stem or, to, or yes. hit it in the brain. Chop so is it you know yeah. that, that whatever that is, there's still an echo of it some somewhere in our yeah. culture. Yeah. So it is. I just I found that um, yeah really fascinating. Um, so yeah, well, I'm, I'm delighted. I was going to ask if you if you're going to carry on and, and do do and take us up to date and maybe just start digging up people who've just died in the last couple of years. Yeah. See, see how things are going. See how they did things back in 2018 or something. Yeah, I don't, dig, yeah. dig up a few of those. I don't, I don't think I'd be particularly keen to dig up very fresh <laughs> graves, but I mean, I've been I've I've looked at some fairly recent cemeteries. Uh, we filmed at the terminals of HS2 when they were digging the cemeteries there. Um, in order to expand the the terminus at Euston and then at um, Park Street in Birmingham. And that that involved the removal of thousands, absolutely thousands of uh, of burials um, in London and Birmingham. Um, And obviously they're all very carefully archaeologically excavated and then 
the remains will be reburied elsewhere. But those were extraordinary sites to visit while they were being while they were being dug. Um, and I made a series for BBC Two about that, which I think was called the Biggest Dig. Um, and that was that was really interesting because then you can link up individuals with um, biographies because particularly in London there were yeah. coffin plates on the yes. on the coffins so you've got actual named individuals who you can actually then trace historically um, so that's that's fascinating too so yeah um, and there were some quite yeah uh, th- those cemeteries were kind of mid seventeenth through to mid nineteenth centuries I think or mid eighteenth okay, through right. to mid nineteenth yeah yeah. No, well, it's it's amazing, and yeah, please carry. I mean, you're not going to stop, so I don't. don't I'm, uh, please carry on doing this, Pro- Professor Alice Roberts. I uh, know it's they're, they're brilliant books. I do recommend both of them. Do do if you haven't read Ancestors, read that. And I mean, you can read Buried without reading Ancestors, but let's sell you two books at once. Get Ancestors as well, and buy uh, buy all of uh, Alice's fantastic books. And I would recommend the audio books because it's it's fantastic having you read them. And beautifully pronounce painstakingly. <laughs> Scottish, yeah. Scottish islands. I'm going to get loads of people right. I'm going to get loads of Gaelic speakers <laughs> writing in. Game. Not quite right, actually, Alice. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Look, thanks so much for talking to us, um, and thank you for writing these books. They're absolutely fascinating and brilliant, uh, ladies and gentlemen. The amazing Alice Roberts. Uh, we're going to be back next week, I think, with Stephanie Merritt talking about her book Storm, her novel Storm. So do tune in for that. And thank you to Chris Evans for all his hard work on the show. Uh, He just cut me off. No, he hasn't. Good. Thank you, Alice. That was brilliant. Thank you.